Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and today, once again, we'll shine a spotlight on an addiction policy forum uh, client that they've worked with and given some real recognition in their technology and innovation area. And in this episode, we're going to be talking with Chris Wilkins, who is the CEO of Chess Mobile Health, and we're going to talk about a smartphone application that provides an Addiction Comprehensive Health Enhancement Support System, better known as HS. It's a smart app that effectively offers a digital version of recovery support on demand. So, Chris, welcome. Uh, Good morning, Greg, and thank you. A pleasure to be here, and thank you for the work you're doing. Okay. So, HS is a mobile app that now is in use by more than 5,000 addicts in recovery across the country. So, tell us a little bit about how that works, Chris. HS was developed by uh, the fellow that I refer to as one of our country's very best health uh, delivery systems thinkers, Dr. Dave Gustafson at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It was developed uh, after he and his colleagues had done extensive work uh, under a Robert Wood Johnson initiative called the National Treatment Improvement Initiative, or NIATEX. And uh, during that initiative, it was very, very clear to Dave and his colleagues that some tool was necessary to bring instantaneous support to people when they were out in the world uh, trying to manage their recovery, uh, and that that tool could also be multi-purpose to help people who care for those folks understand what's going on with them uh, so that uh, interventions and support could be offered prior to really strong uh, negative relapse events. The research uh, was put through a NIH-funded 349-person clinical trial, and the uh, results uh, in that study were a 50% reduction in heavy drinking days and significant extension of abstinence rates. So now let's break it down a little bit further and this how it goes about providing that instantaneous additional support that they so desperately require. Sure. Uh, so let's take some practical examples. Um, one of the key features of the product is that it uh, uh, sort of auto-generates uh, a one-question uh, daily ecological assessment, and that question is pushed to the person in the morning, and the question is very simply, do you think you can make it through the day? If the person answers that uh, no, the system will then say, hey, look, 
system. There's uh, some audio tapes on relaxation. There's some uh, reading you can do about coping skills. Uh, there's a web link to uh, something uh, that will help you with conflict resolution. Those resources and those materials are matched up to the person based upon the information that they've put in the system. Another way that the system does it is uh, that each uh, person using the system can designate uh, in the system places that were high-risk locations for them during their drinking or using days. And then once those, those locations are designated, uh, they are geofenced uh, in a 100-yard perimeter so that when the person gets in proximity of that location, the system will do the same thing. It'll push, you know, suggestions uh, and resources in the person's direction. The other way uh, that the system does that is uh, we have embedded in the system a thing we call the weekly survey, which measures the risk factors and the protective factors that people have in their lives. Um, based upon the answers folks give when they do that weekly survey, the system will auto-generate sort of some custom suggestions based upon what they're struggling with uh, that they've indicated in the survey. And significantly, all that goes to the caregiver as well so that they can understand what the person's struggles are and they can intervene as well. What really happens to address that, address that vulnerability there as far as their support team being called in? I think the answer to your question, Greg, about what happens next after somebody has indicated there's a level of risk is what's really important because it's really demonstrating that once uh, the, the peer support community or uh, people working in uh, the treatment field or in primary care or at other levels of the health service delivery system, once they get that signal, each uh, entity that is using HS and supporting that person can marshal their special competencies uh, and move them in that, person, that person's direction. So, for example, if, uh, if the person is supported by a peer uh, recovery coach, uh, that coach sees the signal and can jump on and text the person uh, uh, or, I'm sorry, put in a message to the person that will pop up as a uh, text message saying, hey, where are you? Uh, can you talk? Uh, or just stay where you are. I'll be right there. Or whatever they feel is going to be appropriate to bring the person support at that moment. Perfect. It's obvious on your second point of the four points there that that is giving the his support team, the care people, just tremendous insight. Um, the information on specifics, you mentioned the high-risk locations, and um, if they enter those, then you've got that geolocator that will go off. Let's get into a little bit more detail on how that works. That's just fascinating. Yeah, so let me give you a for instance. Um, one of the capacities of the system is to put into the system uh, a personalized set of things that the person believes motivates them. In many, many, many cases, Greg, that will be either recording a video of their kids or recording themselves uh, when they're coming to the end of an inpatient stay, you know, talking about their recovery plan and their resolve and you know, I always use the example because it was one of the real-life examples I had the privilege of actually experiencing with someone. Uh, you know, a fella had recorded, uh, I never want my kids, I never want to see my kids' faces with that look of disappointment if I come home drunk again. So when uh, he gets near uh, that uh, geofenced danger zone, uh, the system automatically pops up, you know, go to your motivation, and it's right there on the screen. He's just got to touch one one part of the screen. And 
instantaneously he'll be looking at himself, reminding himself what his resolve was and how he didn't really want to inflict that kind of anxiety on his children again. I, I believe that's actually one of the most powerful potentials and dynamics of the system, that people can see themselves and what they were thinking uh, at moments of feeling like they want to make the wrong decision. Wow. That's really powerful. Very powerful. Huh. Okay. So telling the story on relapse then, let's get into that in a little bit more depth on how it's able to convey, uh, you know, what you, really what you mean about that. Um, the sort of the twin features, the horrible twin features of relapse are isolation and hopelessness. So in terms of isolation, uh, you know, uh, the uh, let's just say the person is out there and, you know, had a terrible day and they're early in recovery and, you know, they feel judged or shamed or uh, any of the things that can drive you to isolation and hopelessness. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're really about to make that choice that uh, is not a good one. Uh, that's the moment at which if they stop using the system for an unusual amount of time, uh, a coach or a caregiver can see that. If they, uh, in other words, if they're isolating by stopping using the system, if they type something on a message board that is, you know, uh, indicative of hopelessness, uh, that can be seen. Um, and then once that signal is in and detectable, uh, then the system can push uh, things to them as well as, you know, the people who are working in the system uh, to intervene. Uh, the, whole, the whole point of relapse uh, avoiding is to defeat those two things by making the person aware of their own power to overcome and by making somebody who cares about them uh, know in a way where they can get to their side and, you know, hold their hand and say, we care about you. You know, you don't have to be alone. You're not alone in this. And uh, as, as it's worked in AA for decades and NA and other support groups, once you know that you are connected to somebody who cares, that's a powerful weapon against isolation and hopelessness. Okay. Now let's get back to the patient surveys and talk a little bit more about that. So uh, the survey is uh, a nationally recognized, uh, validated, evidence-based survey that was developed by a really fine group of folks at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, it's referred to as the Brief Addiction Monitor. It comes in a couple of different forms, but in the form uh, that we have it on the system is a 12-question survey, uh, essentially that asks first, have you, you know, had anything to drink or have you used in the last seven days? Uh, and then the second question is, if so, would you like HS to notify your counselor or caregiver? Uh, the next 10 questions are five questions that measure protective factors and the strength of protective factors in your life. And the second five questions are questions that measure risk factors, uh, or five risk factors in your life. So um, the questions are answered on a, a numerical scale. Uh, depending on the, the context of the question. So the person may get asked um, on the protective side, uh, rate your involvement with uh, work, school, self-help, uh, and other activities. And if they indicate a strong involvement, uh, that obviously gives uh, a signal that the protective factor is present and, um, and 
feeling solid in their relationships with family and friends. Going to the other side, to the risk factor side, they may indicate uh, if they're not feeling well that they have a very strong urge to use or drink, and they rate that urge very highly. There's a risk signal. Uh, they might uh, also indicate with a strong signal that they're feeling anxious and depressed. There's a strong signal. So. All of those factors, uh, the two threshold questions and those uh, 10 questions, uh, get measured uh, through a Bayesian uh, process uh, that sort of predicts uh, recovery strength. We like to frame it as, uh, you know, uh, how strong is your recovery because it's a positive way to look at it. And then the system will actually show you graphically how that recovery strength is changing, increasing or decreasing over time based upon your answers to that survey. And as far as the um, risk questions are concerned, you've got some that aren't necessarily totally obvious. How objective do you feel they are in completing these surveys? How, how honest, I guess, is a better way to put it? Do you think they are, Chris, generally? Gosh, um, let me give you two answers. Um, to the extent that the survey itself, you know, accounted for how people interpret the questions uh, and how their uh, answering propensity shakes out. You know, when the survey was formed, uh, the researchers thought about uh, uh, those questions uh, and more. Um, you know, I, I think that whether people mean to isolate and conceal or to be fully transparent and disclosing, they're telling a story, right? And that story is, I'm either struggling really hard with this disease and feeling overwhelmed, or I'm feeling like my plan is working and I'm able to cope day by day with the things uh, that are around me. Um, so I don't think much about their veracity or truthfulness. I try to think about what the story is that's embedded in the answer and the overall data. So, you know, if, if that fellow woke up in the morning and said, uh, yeah, I think I can make it through the day. And then by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's showing some heavy uh, risk for wanting to drink or having relationship troubles or not sleeping. You know, there's a story there because there's a disconnect between uh, two answers that has to be, you know, sort of pulled apart and understood. So this is really valuable information, and it's tracked by the counselors as well as coaches. And additionally, I guess the agencies can aggregate your survey data. But let's talk a little bit about the aggregate and what that can tell and help with. So the aggregate may show a common relapse trigger across a certain population. Uh, it may show, uh, you know, relapse events of a certain type in a certain uh, age group uh, and things of that nature. Um, but I think more importantly in the emerging world, uh, Greg, um, that aggregate data, and by the way, uh, since we launched HS, uh, there are now 4 million data points uh, from those surveys uh, that are out there across all the folks who are using it. And uh, it's very, very important in the emerging health delivery system in this country to be able to have data that builds understanding uh, if you're a provider of health services because uh, the way that you get paid uh, as it's emerging now and into the future is by sharing risk with the people who pay for the services. And the better understanding you have for the person uh, in what they call a value-based payment system, uh, 
you can uh, be at limiting that person's risk and getting a good health outcome, uh, thus, uh, you know, enhancing your system's ability to uh, get paid and deliver services. So I think, you know, uh, agencies can adjust care with the data. They can understand the populations with the data, and they can set up how they share risk uh, in the delivery system based upon the data. It's very important. So, you, Chris, you mentioned a little bit earlier how in the 349-person trial, uh, it, uh, pres- it presented 50% results, 50% improvement in terms of their ability to stay connected, stay sober. Um, now that you've got it out in, in use by more than 5,300 patients, what kind of stats can you share with us? One of the key uh, agencies showed that uh, they were getting much higher treatment adherence uh, from people using the system. And we all know, you know, and have known for years that uh, length of time in treatment and adherence to treatment is a key predictor of overall success or long-term success. Uh, Another agency has uh, been able to gather data that shows that in cases diverted from emergency departments that end up with a peer coach and uh, HS, that it's far less likely that that person is going to return to the emergency department again uh, in the next 30 or 60 or 90 days. Uh, I think it's very valuable. Another agency has shown uh, that when HS is combined with the use of addiction medication, uh, that with high, high risk folks, uh, there's a 69% reduction in hospital visits. So those are three examples of the data that's emerged from real-world work. And uh, one of the great joys and benefits of our work is that coming from, you know, a research background and coming from, uh, you know, the good folks at the University of Wisconsin, uh, we are able to, you know, share, uh, you know, the the things that people look at uh, with the customers and and say, uh, hey, look at this, take a look at this, this plus this might get you a better outcome. Uh, there's sort of a, a real generosity uh, among the folks who use HS in terms of sharing what's working, and that's that's been a very, very powerful thing as well. So how would a provider go about implementing the HS program? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the first thing to say is, when a provider says, look, we want to do this, uh, we, we really try to sit down with them and ask the following questions. Um, what set of patients are you trying to impact with this tool? You know, is it a particular cohort? Do they have common characteristics? Uh, we then like to say, um, what, uh, what outcome do you hope to achieve with HS, with this population? We then get into the question, how, we, how are we going to measure or how would you like to measure the outcome uh, that you're seeking uh, to measure in the system? Uh, then we ask, what's your existing workflow around the patient right now? How does it work now without HS? Uh, what are the struggles and barriers and pressures that are on your direct care staff or your peer coaches? And how can we set the system up within your system to mitigate or minimize those uh, challenges and those barriers. And then finally, you know, do you have a plan for how you're going to gather the data, report the data, uh, and then interpret the data, uh, and then adjust your care approach based upon what you find? So 
but we begin with those questions, and those are always, you know, great discussion starters. Uh, when you get through that, you end up with a sense of what might be the best entry point and the best configuration uh, in your system with the product. Uh, and then uh, essentially it's, it's, you know, it's uh, a matter of saying, okay, we're going to start on uh, this day or that day. Uh, and then our folks at Just Mobile Health happily uh, start training staff uh, and patients if the agency wishes us to. Uh, and we stand up the system and then support them with any technical or substantive questions they have post-implementation. Uh, and then we're always available to, you know, uh, bounce ideas off of, hey, what do you think about this approach? Uh, you know, hey, uh, what if we gathered this data or that data? Uh, that That's something we very, very much enjoy. We love to have those conversations with our customers. Can you speak to the costs of the program, Chris? Sure. It uh, depends on the scope of the project that the agency is trying to accomplish and the number of product features that they would like uh, that they would like to utilize uh, in the project. Uh, so uh, a small project, you know, maybe uh, anywhere from fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to get it stood up and implemented. If it's a much larger product, there's a sort of a middle band of pricing and then, at the high end, if it's a very, very large project, then we like to pull apart all the variables and then sit down with the customer and say, okay, um, you know, is this realistic? Can you get this done? I think we've got to price this this way. What we've learned is that we can uh, have standard bands of pricing, uh, but depending on the customer's desire to add features that we have or not use features that we have, that that pricing uh, can move up or down depending on what they're trying to do. Okay. So can you cite some success stories and individuals? Is there one or a couple of individuals that stand out that have been just big, just a huge success? In terms of the people on the system, I, I think, you know, we've got, uh, we've got those sort of testimonials about, uh, well, I read one recently, you know, a person said, you know, I had, had you know, in excess of 15 rehabs. Uh, nothing had ever worked for me because my anxiety was such that when I did go to an AA meeting, I, you know, would get triggered being in a crowd and feeling like, um, you know, just feeling like I was frozen. And uh, HS allowed this person, as they, you know, made their made their observation, uh, HS allowed this person to get recovery support without the anxiety of being in a big group. You know, it's it's teaching me a heck of a lot. Uh, about, uh, first, what I don't know, and second, uh, about how people may prefer to cu- customize their support and experience, in a, experience it in a different way. So I think that's one of the key observations. Uh, another one that was really striking to me was in one of the projects, um, uh, this was a veteran who lived in a very isolated rural area. Uh, he learned it at 11.15 at night that his father had passed away. Uh, it impacted him very hard. Uh, he immediately posted on HS that, uh, you know, his dad had died and that he was going to go drink. And uh, within seconds, uh, the other veterans who were in his support group were, you know, messaging, posting, emailing, calling, saying, where are you? We're coming to get you. Don't do it. We'll be right there. Uh that is a very, very, very important moment. And in the case of that gentleman, he didn't feel like he was alone, and he did not drink. So powerful. Uh, there's 
there's hundreds and hundreds of stories uh, that have happened over the almost three years we've done this, uh, you know, uh, and that gives us both, uh, you know, the idea about what's working with the system and some ideas about how to enhance what's working in the system. And we pay careful attention to that. Uh, we want to know, you know, not from our point of view, but from the agency or caregiver's point of view, from the person's point of view, from their family's point of view, what really works. And that is a, that is a, a teaching and learning process uh, that goes on constantly and I hope goes on forever. You know, uh, once you think you've got it set in terms of what things are, you should challenge that assumption and say, you know, go talk to some more people who are living uh, or having lived experience of recovery and learn more because there's always another part of the story, Greg. And this technology, uh, the whole idea of concurrent recovery support, of, you know, data that builds an individual as well as a population picture, uh, this whole story is about we will learn more as this progresses uh, faster than we have at any other part of our history in terms of the way we've tried to address this horrible disease. And I think we should be joyful about that. I think that's a great moment. I think it's a great opportunity. I think it's an opportunity for us to share what we learn uh, and to really get committed to the idea that these are the tools that are going to teach us. So, you know, get them out there and use them. Well, Chris, this has been very informative. I, uh, I, I'm just blown away by the potential of this technology and the great work that you've done. So congratulations, and thank you for doing this podcast with us today. Well, Greg, I, I, I want to thank you again. I, I made some reference to it at the top. Uh, your mission with Cover 2 and, uh, you know, the work that you've done to, you know, in a very, very generous way, uh, try to get things out there, uh, try to stimulate conversation, try to stimulate ideas. Uh, it's an incredibly valuable, valuable thing, and uh, we're very, very grateful for it. And the only other thing I'd say is uh, you can't credit me for anything uh, that works with uh, HS. It's Dave Gustafson's brilliance and determination. Uh, one of Dave's key phrases that he used that really captivated me was, nobody should suffer twice, once from the disease and then once from the system that can't get them the care they need. Uh, and so it really was Dave's drive and brilliance and commitment to that value that no one should suffer twice that manifested HS as an idea and as a system. And then it really comes down to the people at Chess Mobile Health who work so hard to make it happen. And then importantly, the people in the agencies and the people who are using the system who are really, really teaching all the time about how we can be better. So. Uh, look past me to all of that, and that's where the credit rests. Well, thank you again, Chris. We've been visiting today with Chris Wilkins, CEO of Chess Mobile Health. He shared with us uh, a little bit, well, quite a bit actually, about HS, a mobile phone application that effectively offers a digital version of recovery support on demand, which is making a difference. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.